It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. How to Prevent a Financial Disaster. Diana Henriquez. The stock market has been up for eight years in a row. The economy is doing well. So why should we worry now about a financial disaster? Because you could have written exactly that same sentence on the eve of the 1987 crash. Just to give you an idea of the magnitude of Black Monday 1987, we say it was a 22.6% drop. That would be more than 5,000 points in today's market on one day. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? The stock... Off to a roaring start, as always. The stock market is on a roll, breaking new records almost every week, up 40% since the prompt election. What could possibly go wrong? That's our that's our opening bell for the show. Uh, the last crash back in 2008, Jim, led to the worst financial and economic crisis since the Great Depression uh, in the 1930s. Yes. And now, of course, you know, I like to play the role of the contrarian on the show. So do. I'm going to posit that to understand what's going on, we really need to go back to the 1987 crash, Black Monday, and to look at how that really foretold a lot of the problems that led to 2008 and continue today. And could happen all over again. Our guest is New York Times contributor Diana Henriquez, the author of the riveting book, A First Class Catastrophe, The Road to Black Monday, The Worst Day in Wall Street History. She also wrote Wizard of Lies about Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, and that was recently made into an HBO movie starring Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer that just won some Golden Globe nominations, if I'm not mistaken. It did. Diana Henriquez, welcome to our table. Thanks for having me. So let's jump in at the deep end. The stock market has been up for eight years in a row. Uh, The economy is doing well. The latest forecast for the global economy forecasts higher growth. So why should we worry now? about a financial disaster. Because you could have written exactly that same sentence on the eve of the 1987 crash. The economy was doing great. The market had been up year after year after year. In fact, the market had been up 40% in 1987, by August. Many of the events that we look at to take comfort from and say, oh, well, that could never happen again, um, were present on the eve of the worst day in Wall Street history, that October 19th, 1987 meltdown. So um, it is important for us to always remember markets go up and down. They rise and they fall. What we need to be worried about is, do they fall apart when they fall? 
And that was what happened in 87. That is what nearly happened in 08. And that is what we remain at risk for today. Now, one of the things I got from your book is that markets don't just go up and down, but they're constantly changing. People finding all these new inventive ways to trade, futures markets, ETFs, all these different ways of investing and trading and new digital tools often to make it all quicker and faster. Yes. And that evolution of markets, all of these forces were coming together under the radar of regulators completely. And in many ways, under the radar of Wall Street traditionalists, people like the the traders on the New York Stock Exchange and uh, people who had spent their life on Wall Street that they knew, thought they understood, and didn't realize was radically changing behind the scenes. And they were utterly unprepared for some of these major forces. That day in October in 1987, That was a long time ago. So why is it important to revisit that now? Well, primarily because we are even more vulnerable to that kind of radical market readjustment today. Just to give you an idea of the magnitude of Black Monday 1987, we say it was a 22.6% drop. That would be more than 5,000 points in today's market on one day. But you know, think of it in terms of 1929. Now, we all think of 1929 as the mother of all stock market crashes, right? The worst day of 1929 was less than 13%. So 1987 was nearly twice as bad as the worst day of 1929. The forces that drove that record-setting meltdown, that one-day drop of, of 23%, are amplified in today's market even more than they were then. But the 1987 crash was important not because of what came after, but because of what it revealed about what had already happened. It revealed what had already happened on Wall Street. And what had happened was gigantic investors had arrived and were following herd-like investment strategies, all of them running over to the same side of the boat at the same time. Um, They were using tools that greatly magnified their power and that sped up the investment process beyond human recognition. So these changes had not happened overnight, and they gave warning signs all through the early 80s that they were happening, but they they happened. And then we did nothing about them. Today's investment players in the street are many times bigger than the giants who battled with each other and nearly tipped the boat over in 87. Two firms, Vanguard and BlackRock, two money management firms together, control $10 trillion. Now, if you'd said that to anybody on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in 1987, We would someday reach that point. They would say, you're out of your mind. That will never happen. We are living in a day when the risks we discovered in 87 have been magnified and amplified and sped up by social media, by high tech, uh, by flash trading in ways that we're only beginning to vaguely understand in which regulators have not adapted to at all. Even professional money managers are alarmed about the volatility, the fragility of the market structures on which they rely. So yes, we we now have a huge stake in the stock market, but less understanding of it and less ability to control it. Why do we need the financial markets? What's 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 the point? 
Well, what I hope people will take from my book is a greater understanding of how we all benefit from a well-functioning market. Now, I'm not talking about just a market that always goes up. Obviously, if, if we could pass a law tomorrow that would make our 401ks never go down, even this Congress could get it passed. <laughs> but that we need a place where um, new ideas can get financed, where uh, growing businesses can find supporters, where savers can get a more earning power on their savings. The regulatory scheme that was put in place as part of the New Deal made the stock market a safer place for you and me. And it, it allowed generations of Americans to participate in the growth of American capitalism. And that's what we had going into the 1970s. And it was in that dismal decade of roaring interest rates and stagflation and gas lines and, and, uh, and political malaise that it started to break. And the big institutions, the giant players, the titans in the marketplace began to shape it to meet their needs, not ours. So in the aftermath of the 87 crash, what did they do? Were there regulatory changes? Well, there was an uh, immediate blue ribbon panel that recommended that one of the most important things they needed to do was have a unified regulator. This was the Brady Commission. The Brady Commission came out with that as one of its prime recommendations, that they unify our regulatory system. It was dead on arrival in Congress. It became a political football, and nothing was done. Um, in the aftermath of 87, unfortunately, about the only thing that was adopted was something they called circuit breakers, which were rules that required that trading briefly stop any time the market fell by a certain point. Well, circuit breakers were tried in 1989 in a little mini crash we had that year. They performed very poorly, and... In the flash crash of 2010, they were utterly useless. So the one thing that they learned out of 1987 hasn't worked. I wish I could report that, oh, no, we learned everything we needed to know, and we took all the remedial action that we needed to take. We didn't, we haven't, and we haven't yet. One element of that that really fascinates me is um, I'm really interested in how disasters happen. And very often you see disasters are partly enabled by the very safety equipment that we put in place to prevent the disaster. And you talk a little bit about some of the, what was somewhat new in 87, some of these algorithms that were designed to protect assets when the market started falling. So they would automatically start selling off stocks yes. with no real breaking mechanism. So how did that work? Well, it was it went under the rubric of portfolio insurance, which does sound so cozy and warm, doesn't it? I mean, it just makes you feel like you can just have another yeah, little cup I'll, of tea. I'll, I'll, have a, I'll have some of that. I'll have some of that. Can I have you know, two orders of portfolio insurance, please? And with the best intent in the world, the academics who developed portfolio insurance believed it would work. It was a way to... Um, Adjust your stock holdings as the market fell by reducing your shareholdings until you were totally in cash. But what became blindingly clear was that this assumed that when you were ready to sell... There'd be somebody there to buy. There'd be somebody there to buy. <laughs> right. And that that person would not be so frightened by your selling that he'd run for the door and, so and grab his all the players are on the same hour are all starting yes. to automatically dump their stocks, yes. you get this self-perpetuating runaway phenomenon. And that's what gave me the title for the book, in fact. John Phelan, who was the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange and had spent his entire life 
on Wall Street. He, he worked at his father's elbow on the stock exchange all through the 50s and 60s. He testified well before Black Monday. He said, you know, these new toys, these new strategies, these new gimmicks um, have the potential to turn a normal market downturn into a first-class catastrophe. And everyone poo-pooed him. He was absolutely right. And they pulled the stock exchange out of a nosedive the day after Black Monday by the skin of their teeth. So wasn't the Dodd-Frank regulation supposed to fix all of this? Oh, please, don't get me started on (laughs) Dodd-Frank. Yes, it was aimed at addressing what we thought had gone wrong. And in some ways, some of its provisions are quite sensible, and I'm quite supportive of them. But one of the principal problems that, that emerged, that we discovered we had on Black Monday, was this balkanized regulatory system, where you had four or five different federal regulators, all with some degree of responsibility for what was blowing up on Black Monday, not to mention 150 other regulators, a banking insurance and securities commissioner in every one of the 50 states. So what we did not need and what, unfortunately, Dodd-Frank gave us were even more regulatory agencies, even more overlap, even more conflicting oversight. So What Dodd-Frank needed to be was an overhaul of our regulatory structure, and what it was was a further complication of our regulatory structure. Our guest is Diana Henriquez. Her book is A First-Class Catastrophe, The Road to Black Monday, The Worst Day in Wall Street History on How Do We Fix It. Jim, uh, what's the best way that our listeners can can support more conversations like this one? You know, leave nice comments on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. It's always good to subscribe so that you get them downloaded automatically. And we also love to hear from you. Leave comments. Send us an email. Visit our website, howdowefixit.me. We'd love to hear from you. Excellent answer. (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davis. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're looking for some solutions. This is getting a little worrisome. There's got to be some way to to fix this mess. Well, I would like to, first of all, suggest some ways that the individual investor Mm -hmm. can approach this new world that we're in, ways to think about it. I'm not saying that individual investors should pull all their money out of the stock market, stick it in a mattress, and put their head under the pillow. We can't do that. But I am saying that you do need to understand that we're the mice on the elephant dance floor here, that when these elephants start to tango, we just need to get out of the way, stay to the sidelines, and not panic. 
because the giant institutional investors in today's stock market are untethered from from you and me. So if you're going to get into the stock market, I strongly urge that you do so on the back of a big elephant, you know, on the back of a well-regulated, well-monitored, and low-cost mutual fund. So each of us can personally adopt some risk parameters, how much we're willing to lose, uh, how long we're willing to invest, how much we can put at risk, abide by those rules, and sleep well. So that's, as, it, as investors, that's one thing we need to do. But as citizens, there's some other things that I think we need to do. Um, first of all, we need to put investor protection back on the public conversation, back on the Washington conversation. It's astonishing to me the extent to which um, boosting business and freeing up the entrepreneur has totally replaced the concept of protecting the investor. So, so what would that involve, protecting the investor? Well, it would involve um, a dialogue with your representatives, with your Congress, about uh, how best to um, carry out that task. Right now, we have um, the role of investor protection spread across a, a village of, uh, of regulators, some of whom have that only as a secondary task, some of whom have that task but don't have enough money to carry it out, some of whom have that task but are doing it only for professional investors, not for you and me. So, But don't we have a shiny new consumer protection agency devoted to just that task? We do, and we have it largely because the others defaulted. Mm-hmm. That's why the CFPB created by Dodd-Frank was one of those efforts to give somebody that unitary task. As you know, it's in trouble. It has not been able to win bipartisan support. It is under constant attack, um, and it doesn't have the long track record that the SEC has to give it staying power. In the event of big investors heading for the exits, another Wall Street crash, which agency or how many government agencies would be involved in trying to ensure stability? Well, darned if I know, but I'll give you a, I'll give you a rough guess. It would certainly include the Securities and Exchange Commission, which has long regulated Wall Street brokerage houses and the exchanges where investment securities are traded. It would certainly include the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, which regulates the derivatives markets. Um, It would certainly include the Federal Reserve, the Office of the Controller of the Currency, and the FDIC, because our big banks, which they regulate, are gigantic players in these marketplaces. Well, what are we up to now? I mean, that's too many regulators. So, So what should happen? Most developed countries have... Um, a central bank, which is our Federal Reserve, and a financial regulatory authority. That's it. Now, I'm not saying that that's the fail-safe operation, but when all of your well-developed, healthy financial neighbors do that, and you come back home to the U.S. and you look at, you know, uh, you have to put all your financial regulators on a bus instead of in a car, then Maybe we should start looking at streamlining our regulatory uh, structure. If I could be king of the world for just a few minutes, I would say, okay, we're going to set up a blue ribbon commission here. I'm going to pick some of the smartest people 
about algorithms. I'm going to pick some of the smartest big institutional investors. I'm going to pick people who understand individual investor needs and have for years. And I'm going to uh, talk to people from corporations who need a way to raise money. And I'm going to put them on a commission and I'm going to say, wipe the board clean and start designing a regulatory system for the market we have today. I don't want to prejudge what the solution would be. I just want us to have that conversation. That would help fix it. You know, one thing that really struck me reading your book and something that also happened in 2008 is things are crashing and something goes wrong in one part of the economy and you realize somebody's overextended and that might bring down a bank or an insurance company. So all these regulators are getting together and they're not even really sure who's in charge. Is it the Federal Reserve? Is it the SEC? Right. You know, um, they never thought they'd be regulating insurance companies. That's exactly true today. I mean, I vividly remember as a New York Times reporter that week after Lehman Brothers fell into bankruptcy in September of 2008 and the very next day, Uh, Ben Bernanke, chairman of the Federal Reserve, and Hank Paulson, the secretary of the Treasury, are frantically trying to save AIG, the insurance giant, which neither one of them regulated. One of the scariest moments of the 2008 crisis was right after Lehman Brothers had filed for bankruptcy, the $60 billion reserve fund, which was one of the first money markets ever, one of the biggest, had the longest track record used by lots of mom and pops all across the country, defaulted. It broke the buck. It could no longer redeem its shares for a dollar apiece because it had invested in Lehman Brothers. And that triggered a panic in the money market industry. Investors began to pull their money out of every money market fund, fearful that it would be the next to break the buck. And we had an old-fashioned bank run on the money market industry. And then you had Ben Bernanke and, and um, the Secretary of the Treasury trying to bail out the money market fund regulated by the SEC. So the, this balkanization had real dangerous repercussions in 2008. We got through it through brilliant improvisation and a couple of, of federal regulators who were willing to walk right up to the edge of the envelope in, in, in and testing just start their, throwing money yeah, at these and guys. ideas. I mean, yeah. you know, they, they uh, rigged up at an FDIC equivalent for money market funds almost overnight, but, and it worked. But, but, but talk about scary. If 2008 happened again, those same regulators would not be able to do what they did then, right? They are constrained by Dodd-Frank in many ways from doing what they did then. So that's another thing that would help fix it. Revise Dodd-Frank, if you must. Revise it from the standpoint of freeing regulators to be more improvisational, to to respond uh, more to the facts on the ground. We can't predict what the next financial crisis is going to look like, where it's going to start, what it's going to take to steer us to safety. So why try to write a rule book? It's all one market with all the same players operating on a global scale. So... um, You know, I miss it too, but it doesn't exist anymore. It's all one market, and it needs to be regulated as one market with freedom and flexibility to respond to where the risks arise and and enough authority to, to act formidably when something happens. We're part of a global marketplace, though. Can we, in the United States, regulate our own market without it being some form of global regulation, what would happen if there was a real financial meltdown? Well, we had a, a look at that with the Great Depression. 
Economists will tell you that a market meltdown that breaks your financial system, a market meltdown that destroys your banking system, that disrupts the payment system, where cash is hoarded in the, in the mattress, where businesses can't get money for payroll, a market meltdown that breaks the machine leads to the worst hard times. Those are recessions it's hardest to climb out of. They do more economic damage to the guy on the street than market downturns, which simply cost everybody some money. Fast forward to 2008, if we hadn't pulled that crisis out of the nosedive it was in, we would, as it was, experience the worst hard times since the Great Depression it almost certainly would have been as bad as the Depression or worse. And remember, in the Depression, at least 25% unemployment. People losing their homes, their farms, their factories, everything. As bad as 2008 and 2009 were, and they were awful. Try to imagine them being even worse. That's why it's so important to me that we understand our financial history. It matters that we know what's at stake, what can go wrong, how close it was, so that we appreciate that it's important to have these conversations to fix these broken parts of our regulatory system. I was fascinated after 2008 that so many people I knew said, well, this whole thing just happened because the bankers are greedy. It happened because people are evil, and we need to punish those people to make sure it doesn't happen again. What what do you make of that response? Well, it's understandable, Jim, but it's painfully ignorant about the real world we exist in today. In in my epilogue on the 87 book, I, I liken us to occupants of a lifeboat shackled at the ankles with the reckless crew that steered our ship into the storm in the first place. And to punish them, we decide to throw them overboard. We're not going to bail them out in our lifeboat if we don't. Strike the shackles off first. When we throw them overboard, we're going with them. The, so we have to bail out some pretty unsavory people to, in order to bail out the rest of us. We can do that. I think we must do that because of the unified nature of our market. Or we can cut the shackles, which means using antitrust law and other federal policies to make sure that our giant institutions are not linked together. Well, there's a big price to pay. When you start cutting your institutions down to size and keep them from operating as an industry, you're going to lose competitive advantage. We have to understand we're all in this boat together. We may not like the bankers. We may think that they were reckless and greedy, but we are all in this boat with them. And punishing them is to punish ourselves. So you've said we can't destroy the bankers without destroying ourselves, without destroying our economy. But shouldn't more of those people who were really responsible for wrongdoing in the 2008 crash have gone to jail? There certainly should have been a more fierce criminal prosecution of people who misled investors, whether they were institutional investors or not, people who failed to disclose fully what kind of risks they were taking. One of the problems that prosecutors confronted was the incredible complexity of cases that they tried to bring. Juries don't like them, and prosecutors know that. Uh, that's no reason not to have brought more financial prosecutions. I think if there had been more aggressive prosecutions, even if they hadn't been successful, um, it would have 
tempered the public anger and made the public more willing to think more constructively about how to fix the rest of our problems. Financial journalist Diana Henriquez, thanks very much. Thank you, Richard and Jim. Jim, I want to start with a set of solutions, and that is to listen to some of our other shows if you're interested in this. Um, we did a show on the Federal Reserve with Roger Lowenstein, which was, which was fascinating, about why we need the Fed. Um, Maria Konnikova, speaking about uh, Bernie Madoff, Wizard of Lies, uh, that show was about uh, con artists and how we fall for them, how easy it is to fall for them. And then uh, Rana Faruhar, who's now with the Financial Times, uh, told us about makers and takers and about the, the size of the financial industry. So what I really took away from this fascinating conversation is we've got to rise above a simplistic, moralistic view on this. It's so easy after a crisis to say like, oh, all those rich jerks, they knew it all along. They're just ripping us off. It's not so simple. In some cases, that's true. Certainly some of those mortgage guys. But it's also possible to crash the plane when you're not trying to crash the plane. And not only that, we need financial markets because you have, say, the future Apple or uh, someone has come up with a great invention. They need to be able to fund it. And if there aren't financial markets, they can't fund these and we can't have progress. Not every great idea comes from the government. Right. And, and they have to be fairly efficient, too. I mean, if a bank's able to lend money, but only with layers and layers and layers and layers of, of staff and lots of expenses, they're just not going to lend as much. The economy will be that much weaker. People will get paid less. They'll save, you know, their savings won't do as well. All of those things tend to drag down the economy. That's why I was intrigued by her idea that you could improve the regulation while also streamlining it. The thing that struck me about this show, Jim, is the drivers of how we lead our lives have become more global. And we need a new set of responses for that. That the, that the biggest change in the world is the rise of the global marketplace and the extraordinary changes brought about by technology. Right. And that's affected the stock market as much as it has many other industries. Right. So it connects things that used to be separate. That's one of her big exactly. things. That the way and, and, that and that's you know, systemic risk markets and insurance, all these things become ways of investing. So they all are interconnected. And then everything is sped up and intensified by digital technology and algorithms, something that we've talked about on a lot of our shows. But everything that used to happen a little bit more slowly, a little bit more cautiously, now can happen on a hair trigger. So it, it means the benefits of technology are greater, but the risks of rapid, scary change are also bigger. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. I'm Jim Mix. That wasn't a very optimistic note to end on. <laughs> that was but, too bad. But I, but I do think that, that there is some good thinking on this. I think that it is possible to make some progress. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Thanks for listening. And check out the Davies Content website at daviescontent.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.